Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Normie Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Last week, we conducted our first interview with a non-living special guest, the artificial intelligence chat GPT. We had fun with it and ran into a surprising lack of technical issues or content faux pas, at least on the AI's part. Today, we'll reflect on that interview and discuss the implications of the AI's existence and application. All right, so this is the second part of our two-part interview. Yes. Um, you can still listen to this one if you didn't listen to uh, last week's um, interview, but they go well together. So um, if you're just jumping in here, you might want to go back, listen to our interview with ChatGTP. Like I said, it was fun. I wish they'd give it a different name because pronouncing the letters <laughs> GPT together is really throwing my tongue for a loop. Um, yeah, it was fun. We, we asked um, you some questions about artificial intelligence, then we asked the AI it. Um, we saw how your answers compared and contrasted. And uh, we had some some mini discussions in there about um, what what that was like. What was the the what were some things that stuck out to you about that interview? It was fascinating. I felt when I went home and talked to my wife. I said, you know, I felt like I wasn't at the edge of the Grand Canyon looking into the abyss, but I felt like I was on the edge of a chasm uh, of a kind and looking at something rising out of it um something that that not uh, nefarious or maleficent maleficent in itself or malevolent in itself too much disney lately <laughs> uh, um but what struck me and, and still does is the the almost um self-corrective the the built-in buffers the built-in seemingly linguistic buffers wherein anything that we asked uh, the response seemed to be uh, of a kind that went along a spectrum of hastening to assure us that that ai is not problematic for humans uh, in any in any terminal sense um that there's always a however mm. and and that it is in the conversation was inconsistent in the ai referring to ai or lumping itself in with humans so there was that level and mm. then there was there was the, the the pronoun reference the gender level that we that we touched on but we could talk about more but that's the first thing that, that comes to mind yeah and i think that those three are are really interesting things i like like you said there there was it almost had this mm. uh sort of schizophrenic um identity where it, it sometimes it it was talking about ai as separate from humanity and other times it was saying well we you know like yes, inclusive like we us together with the ai um, and I think it's funny because I don't remember if we talked about it all last week, but um, you know, in the in the course of this podcast, I've talked to um, and outside the podcast, I've talked to a few different people who are actually involved in developing AIs. Yeah, yeah. And um, the scientists, it's funny they they sort of laugh at at the philosophers, uh, you know, <laughs> um, concerns because, and I think the reason for that is. If you're the scientist and you're sort of in the nitty gritty of it, you're looking at it and you're saying, well, this is such a simple thing. Like this is, you know, 
it essentially only has the intelligence of like a two-year-old. You know, we're just seeding a couple things, and then this simple program is is developing, but it's not really intelligent in any way a human is, and uh, that sort of thing. So it's you know these ideas of dangerous AI and stuff are are so far out there. But a philosopher's job is to look at a global picture, the the entire picture, and then think critically about the implications of things. So, um, if you think about that, like, well, let's you know, what's something else that has a very simple set of parameters but can be very dangerous? Well, a black hole, right? You get <laughs> three things can describe a black hole. You know, your spin, your mass. You know, like, and but it can still be very dangerous if you dropped a big enough one near the Earth. Galaxy eaters. Yeah, yeah, right. we could, and, and, and we have people creating theoretical mini black holes. In yeah. Labs. So <laughs> the simplicity there are the perceived simplicity of something um, doesn't really determine whether or not it's going to be dangerous. But then on top of that, um, even if you say, well, it's really, um, it's not intelligent, right? You're just seeding these parameters. It's gathering up a bunch of data and then it's uh, spitting out these answers. Um, but that, has, and we talked about this with the AI, um, with creativity, right? Yeah. I said, well, an AI is not creative. Really, it's just taking in all of the art and music and painting that was ever done and then spitting out something that's a synthesis of it. We said, well, that is creativity, right? I think intelligence is sort of similar. So do the AI have a conscious element like humans do? No, it doesn't have the ability to um, self-reflect or you know, have a metacognition or make decisions um, in a way that we understand in a human-esque way. Um, but, you know, even if it starts with the intelligence of a two-year-old, the sheer amount of data that it's collecting, and then the way that it's drawing, um, where it draws its information from and how it, it makes decisions about what the output is going to be, it goes beyond a two-year-old. And in many ways, it goes beyond human beings, period, right? Well, it, it does. It feels like, well, you know, they, we talked about this a few months ago. And- the articles uh, where a person who was, I've forgotten his name at the moment, I'm sorry, but it's a person who <coughs> was working with AI and made the determination that we'd hit the singularity, that, that, the, that the it was fully metacognition-laced. Right. And then and, and many of the colleagues say, no, 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 it's just fooled you. Mm. Well, I think we're at a strange, strange edge. Again, I'm using the, we'll call it an abyss, a cliff, whatever, where most of us, if you go back to the uh, explanations of things, and, and we think that we can explain things until we're actually asked. Right, uh, yeah. So fax machines were... I don't know how it works. Yeah. We're, we're the Wizard of Oz most of the time. I, I can't come back. I don't know how it works. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think that for many of us, if Chat GPT or its sister's cousin's progeny or, or iterations can concatenate, pull things, um, algorithmically decide, in air quotes, what to present. 
as you said, and I said last week, I can't make a cogent argument that on the surface, that's any fundamentally different than what we do. But I can say that some, some, some set, I, but I think it's all in how we contextualize it. And my art teacher and I were talking about this this week. And she and I were <clears throat> looking at this uh, AI program that, that generates art. If, again, name eludes me at the moment, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, probably Dolly. Dolly, yeah. that's it, yeah. And, and in one sense, we're shaking our heads and saying, that's not the artistic process. Well, but I think more of it is, is the fact that if somebody tells Dali to do this, that, or the other, uh, as if putting in a recipe and an instant image is generated, that that's not art made by the human. It's art made by Dali, but it's not from the human perspective. We, we labor with our art. We maybe, we don't have to bleed. We don't have to necessarily, but we labor with it. We, we, we ponder. We are surprised at some things that occur to us. We look at a mirror and we say, Oh, isn't the texture of that ceiling reflected in that mirror with the light on it? Fascinating. I can see water in that. I want to take a picture of that. I want to manipulate the picture. I want to work with it until I've adjusted the filters. So I have an ocean because I see an ocean there. That's my process for doing some kinds of, of photographic art. Uh, it's not representational. As, let me show you the, the most absolutely perfect rendering of that ceiling. But I've made this, I've made decisions. I know something of, of an impression that I'm experimenting with that I didn't necessarily know that I even wanted to go to a few mm -hmm. moments before that. So I think there's an intentionality built in algorithmically, and I know this is a long response, but built in algorithmically to things like Dolly or ChatGPT that aren't built into us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, going back to the job of philosophers, right? Um, and you, you and I are obviously not professionals. We're armchair philosophers. This is what we do for fun. <laughs> you know, we just were having a, a pretty deeply philosophical conversation for 15 minutes before the show. It just never stops. When we stop recording, we just keep going because <laughs> this, this is our passion. But there are people whose jobs it is, philosophers of science, right? Yes. It's their job to look at this, right? Because when that individual came forward and said, listen, this thing is self-aware, right? The majority of the scientific community uh, you know, laughed him out of out of town, right? It's the job of a philosopher of science to say, well, guess what? People did the same thing with Galileo. People did the same thing with this is the way any scientific progress goes, is that when something new occurs that changes the paradigm, the majority opposes it. Now, that's not to say that it's it's valid for those reasons, right? It's not legitimate for no, those reasons. Not, no, but, but it means that we shouldn't dismiss something for that reason. We so, should be looking at why, right? How? Um, what What are the implications of the fact that this educated um, engineer could come to that 
perception. And if the perception was wrong, then, then, or inaccurate or uh, not entire, then, then what leads to that perception? How are we to actually know? Are we waiting for the gatekeepers to tell us? Yep. It's here. But if, if, if you put, Chad GPT was out from the end of November, opened up to the wide world to test and look at and poke. And, and we did some of that poking. And now we have, I, uh, earlier this week, I believe I sent you the article about this, a, a, a very young, uh, computer student, uh, seemingly brilliant, uh, who, has written a way to tell if something was written by Chad GPT. Yeah. So we have have this tool that's been out there and struck GPT before or a couple of iterations before, but a couple of years. But Chad GPT released in November. And now we've already got somebody uh, uh, responding because the academic world, understandably, and, and, and on some levels, is, is saying, well, uh, students are, they can have this machine right there, but how am I to know that this wasn't written this, uh, but was or wasn't written by a student. And now we have somebody else coming along and say, here we go. I can give you a reasonable test that looks at the language construction and uh, can tell you whether it seems to be imitative of human uh, language or does not follow uh, some human patterns. Well, bravo. But the, the, the point is that that's all statistical and probabilistic. And one of his, one of the students' observations was, ChatGPT tends to uh, write in sentences that are more or less roughly the same length, mm. but that human writers write long sentences, write short sentences, and and have a, more of a, a, a not bombastic but a burst. I think he calls burstiness as one of the <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, metrics. But I know that I spend a lot of time talking with students. In, in my formal work back in the day, uh, about trying to vary sentence lengths to bring more of a conversationality to it. But those students were writing sentences that more or less were five to seven, eight words per sentence. So I can't, I, I, the, the irony and the the parallelism, Joel, is is fascinating. Yeah, I worry about this um, it, with school. All my papers get um, filtered through a an anti plagiarism yep. um, tool, and I always, every time I submit a paper, I always think to myself, you know, there's so many people in higher education. What are the chances that I'll submit a paper um, that's very similar to another student's that we drew the same conclusions completely separately, right? But if the plagiarism tool comes back that I copied this person, that I'm going to be punished for, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, these, the, the limitations of tools and how tools imitate people, um, or how people's natural inclinations and how they do things might corroborate how a tool works. I mean, the tools are learning from, from people. So we expect the tools <laughs> to operate the way people do. So, um, yes. yeah, trying so there's to, a, there's a, there's a ceiling on this. I, I think, mm -hmm. I think it's, well, I, I was always the out, outrider on this topic. B barring trying out some of the plagiarism filters, I, uh, because we would have workshops or conventions in which we were required to try these out. 
and then pressured to adopt. Well, it didn't take too much pressure because a lot of people are just constantly, constantly fretting about plagiarism. Uh, I was called naive. I probably uh, seemed that way. I never used a filter beyond having to go through the process in a workshop to test it out because I trust my own limitations and my perceptions and my my experience, which is not godlike, which is not omni, as we talked about, which is one person. But my primary concern is not, was not, plagiarism, because for the most part, my students weren't plagiarizing. They were trying to put their heads around ideas. Some were trying very hard, some tried very hard. And in so doing, we're stumbling and would invariably uh, end up with a quotation from something. And all it took was to say, you need some quotation marks in here. Which part of this was yours? Which part of this was somebody else's? Well, this part I took from a book. Okay, this needs quotation marks. Here's why. So it's that me mechanistic um, formality. Now, I'm not saying that, that some people did, of course. Um, we're not a police state yet. We're getting closer all the time, in my estimation. And that's that's in the academic world, too. When the very first consideration is whether or not chat GPT has written your... Of course, it's a concern. It's written your paper. But why is it a concern? Why would a student be tempted to do this? Well, 10 seconds in there, you've got a paper. But are most students really going to do that? I think that's, that's for me, Joel, the philosophical question. Yeah. I'm not convinced that 90% of students would do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I, I think I, I agree with you. So we've gotten 18 minutes in. I've, I've asked one question. Yes. I, haven't even, I haven't even mentioned what this yes. episode is, that we're, we're talking about conversational AI, which is kind of its own um, division of AI. Um, so we've, we've gotten so far, and I'm going to mix up the order of the questions a little bit from what I had, because I think it will help the flow. Um, what makes conversational AI necessary? Uh, conceptually? Yeah. Why, why do we need a conversational AI? There's, there's plenty of AI out there, right? Yeah. And its job is to amalgamate a large amount of information and then, um, give us an output to solve, solve certain problems that we have. Why do we need it to put that output in such a way that we could possibly confuse it for interacting with a, a human being? I'm going to posit some things. I'm not saying this is absolutely so, but to me, uh, it would be access, uh, uh, rapid accessibility. Ask a question, there's an answer because we've you know, Google Maps, <laughs> you want. Um, it would be for uh, an interactivity, an interaction that feels more lively and therefore with data that might be dull or repetitive, it could be more interesting to have a chat about it. Uh, and, and, and jumping to something else, it can be, I think it, there could be great utility for caretaking. We mentioned this last week. So for me, those are three. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you you probably hit it on the head there. I think that it's it's a accessibility. I think that's the big one, right? Because there's a lot of AI that do a lot of 
problem solving, but they're all at higher academic or technical levels. Mm -hmm. I think the goal of the conversational AI is to work its way into everyone's life, which is probably, um, you know, uh, like we talked about, Chat GPT actually gave us an example last week. Um, the example it gave was capitalistic in nature, right? Yes. So, you know, create that bias that is algorithm, right? So you you yeah. you follow the money to get the answer, right? So with AI, you have this powerful tool. If you make it more accessible to a a larger amount of people, you're going to increase your your profits. Um, which we saw with the parent company of Chat GPT, OpenAI. Um, there, after Chat GPT came out, their their profits skyrocketed, right? Mm -hmm. And they're already working on um, a paid version of the service. And we might actually lose the free version that we have right now. At some point, it might be um, put behind a paywall. So, I guess th so. That quest that sort of changes the the color of the question a little bit, right? What makes conversational AI necessary? Um, do you think a, a conversational AI is necessary, well, do you, or do you think that they're pushing something on us in order to to profit? I, there are a lot of well, it's that word "necessary," Joel. That's the that's <laughs> that's the killer word. Uh, is it necessary? Was it necessary to have computer chips? Yes, if you wanted to go into a computerized world. I'm way oversimplifying. Was it necessary to have the horseless carriage? No, no, but, but but there were uses that it would that it would imply a need. Was it necessary to have laundry machines and so on? Well, it was supposed to reduce labor. It doesn't always do that for people, but for many people, it, it does. You know, is it necessary? No. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that the story that that brings it into focus is um, Google. You know, ChatGPT is working with Microsoft in order to sort of integrate it into Bing as part of a internet search engine. Mm -hmm. And this sent the alarm bells ringing at Google, right? <laughs> um, I think that that helps with the question, right? Because you think about, think about how any of us that are old enough, how much our lives changed when Google came around, right? If Before, if you wanted to find something on the internet, there were search engines. Um, but you had to word things a specific way. You had to do everything just right yeah. to try to get to where you wanted you to get. You had to learn Boolean logic. Yeah. And then all of a sudden Google came out and uh, you just didn't have to put any effort in to get your answer, right? You could type in, it. you didn't even have to put anything in a, in a sentence. You just type in a, a couple words and, and it will find exactly what you want. Yeah. Do you think that, does conversational AI really... I mean, that was a paradigm-shifting technology, the, the Google search engine. Do you think conversational AI will have that kind of impact, or do you think that it's really going to do the same thing, but just in a, a different way? I think it's going to have that kind of impact because, because it com combines a number of things. For instance, to go, going back to the utility of this, for someone who um has a diminishment of sight uh, you know and and there have been text readers for some time now but they started i i was around with the first text readers right that's so i remember how clunky and robotic these things sounded and uh, it would read um uh, periods question mark question quote, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. okay 
And you had to listen to that if you were a blind student or a student who was even legally blind as a way of accessing a textbook. Or you could have audio text where somebody else is reading the textbook. Okay, cool. This, to me, and we didn't try this last week, but that, that would be the, the next step for me would be to say, all right, chat, whatever I call you, Alfred. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. What, tell me, it's like the Tony Stark thing. It's like the, the, all the science fiction, the marvelization of things. I want, it, I want quick access to information. I want to actually tell systems to do things faster than I could possibly make them do in order to end up with a result that I could have in seconds. Now, if that's because... I'm in the position of saving the world. I've got to have only a few seconds. Well, that means we've gotten ourselves into a bad situation in the first place. Do we need this? Not if we thought our way through problems. <laughs> but but if I could sit and say, please tell me about uh, four branches of philosophy. Keep it brief, but give me an overview of four branches of philosophy. And then when, when the chat does it, when Alfred says that, then I can say, all right, now, please tell me the three preeminent names that arise in the development of these branches. Okay, fine. Which name did you depend on most for your response to me? Hmm. Did you defer to Kant? Did you defer to, why did you not defer to Kant <laughs> or, or those kind of things? That's what I'd be doing with it. Yeah, and no, I think that, I think that you're right. Um, I think that it, it is going to have that kind of effect because I sort of have um, an, an, an anecdote here. Um, I'm a musician, obviously, right? Um, for the most part, I just write my own music. But every once in a while, I'll hear a song right on, uh, on a streaming service and say, oh, man, that's really cool. I want to figure out what they're doing there. So maybe when I write a song in the future, I can use that musical motive, yeah. that, the hook. Mm -hmm. not, not copying it, but, but using that how the melody inter interplays with the harmony or whatever the chord is in a different context, right? So um, I go to Google and I type in um, chords for X song. Well, and then a, a web page pops up and I click on that web page and then I, it brings up a tab. So on the computer screen, they have marked out, you know, just little dashes that represent the, the strings on a guitar mm. and then numbers on those strings showing what frets were being played in what order. So I look over it and then I, you know, have to figure out the fingerings and do these sorts of things. I tried with chat, chat GPT saying, just type in, hey, what makes this song cool? And it spits out this whole string of things and it's accurate. It, it, it picks up on what I listened to that I thought was cool. It says, well, okay, you have the bass line walking up while the vocals are walking down so it's kind of this counterpoint and it's playing over a major seventh chord that's being played on a guitar which gives it an, an atmospheric or airy feel and i go that is exactly what makes this cool that's why you know and then if i say okay well you know how do you play this it, it comes up with it right so it does um you know when we talk about google search engine in comparison to previous search engines right they accomplished the same thing, but you had to put in a lot more work to get there before. ChatGPT does a, it does a similar thing to the Google search engine. Instead of, you know, typing in your your couple words and then having to sift through results and finding something and then manually figuring it out, you just ask the question, and it it has some insight into what you're asking because it has this huge 
database of logic behind it that it can draw from to figure it out. And, then, and this is an excellent anecdote. So let me carry it forward. And, you say, and, and if you were to say to it, all right, so what were the influences that led mm. to the song? Or you challenge it. You say, okay, let's go to the next level. Let's talk about why, or let's talk about how, or let's talk about focus. This can be an extraordinary tutor, mechanical tutor. I'm using the old term mechanical, because going back to, you know, we were talking about the history of AI in various ways last week. The term didn't start getting used formally until a conference in 1956 at Dartmouth, where a group of big thinkers were talking about this, but they insisted on, they, they were looking, they were essentially going back to the, the touring problem of, 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 of being able to make something that was linguistic, its responses would be linguistically indistinguishable eventually, but that's not where they, that's not where they really were starting. What they were starting with, it has to be nuts and bolts. They were saying, it has to be a machine. Hmm. And, and and on that goes. But we're talking about a machine that becomes so transparent that we almost forget it's a machine. And that's on us. Why do we want to forget it's a machine? Yeah. I, I, I don't have the answer to that question, but I think it's very much in the front of, or in the shadows of this conversation. Yeah, races, because humans, as we've, we spend a lot of time talking about humans, right? Yeah. Um, we talk about them in the context of animals. We talk about them in the context of their, their dealings with each other. Um, they're usually, we want to have a separation, right? We want to say that we're better than the animals or we're better than the computers or we're better than these things. But at the same time, we anthropomorphize these things. We, we, we look at our pets and we say that they have human characteristics. We take the machines and we try to make them human-like. Yes. So what, what is that? You know? I, what <laughs> is the need to do that? Because I think that can be dangerous. Mm. I understand. <laughs> I'm a science fiction reader. Of old school, golden age science fiction all the way up through. Um, it can... How, what do I mean by dangerous? If we... If we think something's there that isn't, uh, to me, uh, to, to cross to, to cross reference into an example, it would be dangerous if I thought uh, that I should depend on my granddaughter to make a logical decision about uh, the next step in a process that we should do. Only because if that, if there were uh, important things hinging on that decision, um, she might hit on the, on the idea, but she hasn't had the wealth of experience that lots and lots of years potentially can give. But we would probably say, nope, don't quite depend on that. Well, <clears throat> when you uh, were, were doing your military service, Everybody on a team, presumably, was put on a team for some reasons, for whatever skill sets are brought there. <clears throat> you don't know what the skill set is of a machine. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's one thing to talk about humans of varying developmental capacity. It's another thing completely to talk about animals or machines, right? For that reason, <laughs> the, 
I said it to my my wife one time. We have a cat, and the cat loves us, right? Snuggles with us. It's great stuff. And I said, do you think that if we blew him up to the size of a tiger, he would still act this way? Or do you think that he'd eat us? <laughs> and we really struggled with that question because, good question because you don't know what's going inside, no, going on inside know. the mind of a cat. A kid, you in in many ways, we're all behaviorists, right? We look at we look at the behavior, we look at the output, we look at the stimulus response of these things, and then we try to draw insights about the internal states of it. But we can't do that. We, by definition, cannot know the mind of this cat. It's the same thing with the computer, right? We can, we can look at the output. We can look at the stimulus, which is the data put in. We can look at the response, which is the output put out. And we can look at the way. But when, if we're trying to, inter- to determine the internal states of it, we're trying to determine what it can and cannot do intelligently, we are, by definition, incapable of doing that. We were, we were able to do it in programming because then you were deciding all of the parameters of the thing. Yes. But with artificial intelligence, with seeding, you're just setting a very small amount of parameters and then the machine itself is filling in the blanks. And once you give that part of the process over to it, you don't have that insight into its internal states the same way. It can mislead. I think it, now I'm talking way past my wheelhouse. But again, this the science, I'm fascinated by science, I'm fascinated by space science and exploration. And there's this really interesting uh, documentary that was out very recently about the Mars probes. And I was fascinated because the, the builders, <coughs> the engineers, the technicians, everyone, gave a gender to these, called these devices um, sisters, Hmm. sent these rovers to Mars. The rovers lasted longer than they thought they would. But it was always about, the, the pronoun reference was always about this thing being alive, even though, no, it's not alive, but, and, the language that was used from the probe. So when one of the probes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, you know, roughly, but when one of the, the, the probe finally lasted years and years and years longer than it was designed to. And, but it finally at the end sends a message that says, I think this may be my last message. I think I may be shutting down. It has been my honor to be a child of two worlds. I was born on Earth, but I traveled to Mars. I've gotten to see things that no other human has gotten to see. Well, that brings tears to your eyes, right? And and you think, well, what purpose? Hmm. What is the purpose of that? And how might it cloud decision-making? Right. Uh, that's what's in my head. Right, because we know from talking to our AI scientists thus far, um, that that things have not advanced to the point where that could be a, a, a genuine statement. It was something that was programmed into it to say it, which gets a reaction. It's for the humans, right? But why? Why would you want the humans to feel that way? Do you think that 
the development of this technology has, has been guided by science fiction? Do you think that that's why we're in that sort of state? Uh, I, I think it's in, inevitable that it has been affected by science fiction because most many science uh, developers, engineers, and so on will tell you that they went into these things because of science fiction of various kinds. So it's the, the absolute the influence is there as it as it should be. There is no better philosophical literature extant uh, that is accessible to people than science fiction. It almost makes you wonder if if all technology comes from science fiction. And that gets a little bit dicey back at the beginning of technology. It really depends on how you define technology. You could well, go all the way back to prehistoric people, but I mean, really, if you think even back to the the beginnings of writing, right, mm-hmm. um, and you think about some of the early fictional stories, many of them contain elements um, that could be thought of as as science fiction. And I think that what is science fiction, right? It's just people's ideas of how the future could be manipulated through human endeavor. Extrapolation. Right? Yeah. That, not prediction, and that was all. That has still been the the, the misconception of people who don't immerse themselves in science fiction. Go to science fiction because it's not Nostradamus. Mm. It is not supposed to be prophetic. What will happen in 1984? That's not the point. That's not why Orwell called it 1984. And so, if I, I think that the the scientists, the, the engineers, the designers, the programmers, and the philosophers about all this, it's, if they immerse themselves in that extrapolative mode, that there's there's great use in it. But I think, you know, and I'm thinking science fictionally, but, but with a trope from pop culture, thinking the Vulcans in Star Trek would have actually just been disappointed in or perhaps even berated us for doing that with our Mars probes. Mm-hmm. We, we laced it with an emotionalism that was absolutely unnecessary to the science. Right. But is, is emotionalism unnecessary to science? For That's humans? about what I was going to ask, right? Maybe, maybe to Vulcans it's not, but for humans, emotions yes. are a very important part of our drive to do things. This right? is the, in, in the medical world. Well, have very dear loved ones in the medical of various forms of medical and healing practice. And we may talk to them on this show sometime. Um, and to be trained as a doctor now, you have much more of um, an intention, many do, to be human first. To, to not deliver the technicalities of whatever malady or, or, or horror that you are experiencing, but first say, how do you, I'm going to tell you some things, but I need you to tell me how you feel about this because I know it's going to be heavy to hear. But you still have practitioners who just say, oh, this is, this is what you seem to have. This is how it's going to go. Mm. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't want that in our doctors. Yeah. And so I don't think we want that in our science either, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I've seen this happen within my lifetime. You know, my my doctor that I had since I was a kid was very much um, very technical. And then when he retired, I got a guy who was much more personable and 
And obviously I like him a lot better, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, he, when he had a very rare sickness, his first doctor was a very technical guy. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't doing very well and it was bothering him. So he switched doctors um, to somebody who was, who was much more personable. And all of a sudden his, his care markedly improved, right? And, you know, he, I mean, he ended up dying, but when he got better for that period of a year or so, um, you know, he always attributed it to the new doctor being better, being a better doctor. Yeah. But it almost makes you wonder, was the new doctor a better doctor or was it just the fact that somebody, the person who was in charge of your care, who, who essentially held your life in their hands, um, appeared to care about you and appeared to give you some prognosis um, that, that things could get better or, you know, that they gave you some hope, right? And I think that and that word you just said, appear, somebody can appear to care and we will discern it almost every time, whether they really do or not. They're mm. just markers. Oh, well, there are markers in chat GPT. <laughs> is this artificial or is this real? Well, I think that we do know when empathy we sense. I won't say we know, but we have a sense of when the empathy is forced or when the empathy is genuine. And that's what makes the conversational AI interesting, right? Is that, like you talked about a few months ago, we had, you know, an engineer who whose job it was to work on these things get tricked into thinking that what the emotional, it, if you think about it, it's probably, it was emotional, right? Intellectually, because these machines are capable of incredible intellectual feats. But I think that really there has to be that emotional response. It has to have a genuine emotional response in order for us to think of it as being conscious, right? <laughs> so. It, it did enough linguistically to convince this professional that it had some kind of consciousness, and it it probably did it through the manipulation of emotions. Doesn't this take you? It just you just said that, and it takes you just took me right back to the whole idea of the ghost in the machine. We're we're, we're living a paradigm external to us in some ways. Of, of this, where some neurocognitive philosophers and, and doctors and scientists say the I, letter I, the, the pronoun, this generation of, of this notion that I am a separate and distinct being is just a, a ghost that has been projected by the machinery of our brains. Well, maybe that's why we want an I. Yeah. In the AI. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then it gets real interesting, right? Because then we, we take, you take the meta view, right? So if we look at it and we say, okay, well, the machines, um, it's the machine isn't really capable of being, um, the way that they put it in, in the field is an artificial general intelligence, something that is, um, equivocated with humanity. Hmm. Um, you don't have an artificial general intelligence. Um, until this machine expresses something beyond intellect, intellect, you know, until it has emotions, until it has consciousness. But then we talk about philosophy of the mind and we think, okay, well, if we step behind our own heads for a minute and we look at ourselves, we say, okay, well, if we're defining emotions and consciousness 
as the parameters that create something like us, our emotions and cognition, even real things in the way that we experience them subjectively, are they objectively there? And there's a lot of debate about this in science and in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I'm currently, uh, you know, I'm we're kind of doctorate in psychology, and and what I'm looking at primarily is is consciousness, right? And theories on consciousness, um, they it's it's sort of the wild west out there. They span the gambit of of how scientists are trying to figure out how consciousness originates and what its function is. But some of them that that are gaining a lot of traction are saying that consciousness is an illusion, right? Really, what consciousness is, is just an overdeveloped memory system. So as you and I are talking, um, I'm not choosing to say the words that I'm saying. I'm just saying them. And then later on, you know, very short amount of time, but, but still after the fact, I'm experiencing this moment. And that's part of what helps me remember what's happening in order to use that down the road in other interactions that I may have, right? (laughs) And that sounds really far out, but there's been experiments that have demonstrated this. I sent you one where um, um, it was tracking eye movement, looking at a picture of a bee, right? And what they found is if you just look at the eye movement, the eye is, the, the focus of the eye is moving too quickly across the picture of the bee to actually um, gather any information about the image. But 15 seconds later, the brain has integrated all of the signals in such a way as to draw a conclusion about what the eye is perceived. So the sensory information that's actually entering the brain is nonsensical until you have enough of the data to actually synergize what what's going on when, when someone asks so consciousness you, is happening after the fact after the fact when something yes is it it's <laughs> you can't help but laugh and feel humbled and goofy and and excited all at the same time i think i can by these things so i hear a noise pop what was that well, within that 15 seconds, then we're, we're postulating. We're, hmm, that, that may have been a, a heating unit. But why did it make that noise twice? Is there something wrong with it? Was it the heating unit? Was it something, something outside the wall and it just was at the right place? I don't know. Hmm. I had that experience last night. It seems to be something in the heating unit, but, and it's not consistent just once or twice at night. What are the physics and chemistry and, and all that are leading to that? I don't know. So the consciousness that occurs after the experience doesn't always give us answers. Yeah, and so the fact that you know the you know and it go again, these are theories, right? So the, you know there's there's a lot that's happening in it. But if you look at the various branches of science, you know physics seems to indicate that we live in a deterministic universe where um, things are unfolding. Um, you know, from an initial state. And so that would indicate we don't have much control over what's happening. Um, then you look at chemistry and biology and, and psychology and neuroscience, and, and you continue to see this, this sort of trend developing throughout it that says 
we think we have a lot more control over our emotions and our cognition than we actually might, right? And then how you apply that to to AI systems or to animals and how we experience them and how we interact with them and stuff, it really creates a whole new layer to that onion of how we're <laughs> how we describe them and how we we give their attributes um do you think conversational ai will affect the demand for knowledge workers hmm. i i would like to think that it would be uh, a situation that would cause the explosion of need for knowledge workers to refine, to contribute, to make sure that current data has some kind of filter. Mm. Um, and, and yes, I mean, there are people who are saying, well, this is going to eliminate teaching. Chad GPT would, would can eliminate whole, whole chunks of teaching. Perhaps, but, uh, and I don't have this notion of, of indispensability, even though I'm already formally done, I still teach. <laughs> but I don't, uh, I, I don't think it's absolutely necessary or absolutely given that would eliminate. Because I, I think that the pandemic taught us that while we like to work more at home, there are a lot of people who didn't like to learn or attempt to learn through Zoom. Mm. Right. That, that we're not talking about Zoom now. We're talking about Chat GPT. I think there might be people who might not want to have that same voice. So they changed the voice, but it would still be the same effect. And ultimately, it's still not an interactive, an interaction with a human who might see in the way your eye moves, the way your eyebrow might, might see in the way your head tips. A question, an uncertainty, uh, and the human teacher says, ah, you have a question. I don't think we're anywhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sort of torn on it, right? Because I think on the one hand, um, if I, if I was spending a lot of money to get my doctorate, which I'm not, <laughs> and if I was planning on being a, a teacher or a professor, which I'm not, I would be concerned about this, right? I, cause it does seem that Maybe not now, but maybe within a decade or two, um, there might not be a need for teachers or professors, especially, like I said, with, with my anecdotal use of it um, and asking it to teach me things about music or about writing, um, how accurately it, it did so um, would, would seem, to, seem to be more effective um, than a random teacher or professor that you might pluck out of, um, out of the world. But on the other hand, I agree with what you're saying, right? Um, and I think that this is reflected in like Dali's art, right? I think that 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 visual representation is much more powerful than the the linguistic one you you have with Chat GPT. Um, if anybody's ever used Dali, if you ask it to to create a picture for you, right? Um, you can you can put in a very detailed um, description of what you want. And you can picture that picture in your head, but what it gives you is not that. Mm -hmm. What it gives you 
is something that is probably much more technically accurate based on the description that you gave. Um, and it might be right in quotes um, based on the average of all of the input of humankind. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't address your personal your individual vision. vision, right? And that's what a good teacher does, you know? And not all teachers are good. That's what a good teacher does. Like you said, a good teacher is going to be able to look out at a class and see who's having questions, see who's struggling, see who's having epiphanies. And it's able to, you know, they're able to see a progression from the beginning of a course to the end of a course, a beginning of a class to the end of a class. From question number one through question number five of an interaction, see where it's heading, what it's doing. Kind of like we're doing here, right? Our questions for this, for this show have sort of been all over the map. We've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, science fiction. We've talked about, you know, human inner, you know, human subjectivity. We've talked about a bunch of different things that are related to the conceptual abstraction of conversational AI, but are not specifically, technically about it, right? Right. And so to the AI, this conversation may be a bit incoherent, but to anybody listening, to some of them it's incoherent too, but but to some of them they might be thinking, okay, well, this is jumped all over, but I can can connect the dots. I can see what's happening. Yeah, I think that that's the the important part is is that separates it still is we we don't want it so fast that we miss the human hmm. i think ai would cause us ai might eliminate that 15 seconds hmm. or seriously re, revise how we how we do consciousness yeah, there was there is something that's a little um it's a little uh it's hard to explain. It's, it's off-putting or upsetting when you enter a prompt and you see it spit out these paragraphs of text that appear to be well thought out rational arguments, right. but it's in such a short time frame. There's something in your brain that goes this you should not have been able to get here in the amount of time that it took after I asked the question, right? Right. Because it's it's not thinking in the way that a human is. It's not going through all of the tangled mess of neurons that we have. It's not connecting to all of these sort of vastly different experiences and knowledge that, that human brains have that lead to the unique insights that humans have, that lead to that, that personalized insight into a topic instead it's it's drawing on a much larger amount of data um but it's not doing it in the same way in the same way no and so when it comes to teaching um or being a professor or or any knowledge work really um could this have you know very beneficial um uh contributions to teaching or to medicine or to any knowledge work Yes, but like you said, where how where's it drawing its data from? Who's gathering this data? Who's filtering this data? Who's deciding that this data was gathered ethically, gathered accurately, gathered, you know, it and who shapes it? Who 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 the people writing the algorithms that ultimately contextualize or shape what's being presented? 
Yeah, because um, when I was doing the research for this show, I looked into how it was developed. And it really does develop a little bit like a human being. They have a couple people who are dedicated to helping it grow up, you know, setting its parameters, trying to determine um, what things they want to shield it and protect it from and, and what things it, the majority of its young life is listening to two real people talk. Yeah. And so it listens to two real people talk about things and it, it examines the interaction back and forth and what they're saying and how they get there and stuff. And in the end, you know, after all of those thousands of hours of development and, and millions of dollars of, of research and stuff, it still doesn't replicate that. Um, but it, it, it is built in a similar fashion. We are at a moment that <clears throat> this should be mind blowing. It was mind blowing for me, uh, but it, you, you stumble back upon these impressions and you cross reference and you check. In 1637, Descartes, our, our grand duelist, he wrote this. If there were machines which bore a resemblance to our body and imitated our actions as far as it was morally possible to do, which is an interesting thing. We should always have two very certain tests by which to recognize that for all that, they were not real men. And he goes on to talk about the test. 17th century speculation about if there were machines, science fictional, philosophical, we've been thinking about this a long time in, in human context. Yeah. There wasn't even really practically in any machine, any way to make a machine that could do anything remotely. Well, you had some calculators. There were, you know, there were the right. computers, but even so, yeah, we, we have been dwelling on this a long time. Yeah. We, we really just scratched the surface in this episode, but that's the beauty of the podcast is, you know, we're, we're going to continue to talk about it in the future. Yeah. I'm sure we'll continue to look at it. Um, but until next time. Uh...